Today we are indeed preaching from Revelation 12, studying Revelation 12 together. If you did not come with the Bible today, we have one available for you. It would be under a seat, either underneath you or in front of you, and we would encourage you to turn there to page 971. We're in Revelation 12. On the day before her 17th birthday in 2003, Amanda Berry disappeared as she made her way home from her job at a Burger King near Cleveland. A year later, another Cleveland teen, a 14-year-old named Gina, vanished while returning home from middle school. (coughs) Searches for both girls came up empty, and as the years passed, it became increasingly unlikely that they would ever be seen again. I have to imagine that for those two girls, they spent many days and many nights thinking, there's no way we're ever getting out of here. But I am an optimist, so I have to think that I would also spend many days and many nights thinking, surely, somehow, some way, I'm going to get out of here. And for us as Christians, we need that heavier dose of optimism. We may see all the bad in our world and in our families and in our neighborhoods, and in our own lives, in our own hearts. We may see a lot of negativity, a lot of sin, a lot of suffering, and think, there's no way there's a happy ending to this story of my life or of my family or of of the world we live in. But our passage today wants us to see life through that more optimistic lens, through a more realistic lens, because it's intended to tell us the story of reality, of what is true, which of course then means it also tells us what is false. What do you think is true? What do you think is the true story of the world? When you look at suicide bombers, or when you look at droughts or floods, or hurricanes or wildfires, what's going on behind all those things? What's going on behind the industries that drive our culture and our economy and our world? Revelation 12 addresses all of this and so much more. And again, if you haven't already turned there, I urge you to have a Bible out so that you can be looking at the text. Revelation is filled with pictures with symbolism. And our passage today is itself symbolic. Revelation 12 symbolically describes the spiritual battle that is raging behind the scenes. All right, I just want you to picture that there are curtains and all you're seeing are a few actors in front of the curtains, but behind the scenes there are people pulling strings and bringing in special effects, whether it be fog or smoke or flashing lights. There are actually things going on behind the curtain. You may only see a little snippet of what's actually happening in reality, but behind the scenes there's a lot happening, and this passage tells you what's going on behind the curtain. It's a great battle, and it's symbolically described here in Revelation 12. Let me read the entirety of this passage. If this is your first time joining us for Revelation, you picked a great week to be here. Primarily because it's a short passage, considering uh, how long some of the other ones in this series have been. So Revelation 12 today, we're going to sort of slow down our approach through Revelation these next few weeks at least. 
So follow along as I read Revelation 12. Again, I believe it's on page 971 if you're using a Bible provided. And a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems, or crowns. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle, so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness, to the place where she is to be nourished for a time, and times, and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Once again, this is a very symbolic passage, symbolically describing a spiritual battle. And maybe you're sitting here wondering, why could God have not just basically told us the point of this passage in one sentence? And we could all go home super quickly. That would be nice in some ways. But do you think there's a reason God uses symbolism? Throughout Revelation and in many other parts of the Bible, I think there's a really good reason. And I want to uh, ask you a question here about a medical device. Do you know what a defibrillator is? 
It's one of those machines that you put on somebody whose heart has stopped or it's gotten really irregular or something like that. It provides an electric shock. Let me read to you this quote by a guy named Tony Renke, who's a, a theologian, a journalist, a Christian author. He writes about Revelation this way. The imagination-stretching images are God's way of sliding the spiritual defibrillator over the slowing hearts of sluggish Christians. The images, like the ones we just read about a dragon and a woman and a child, the images are for Christians who are growing lazy and beginning to compromise with the world. Christians who are allowing their hearts to become gradually hardened by sin. The answer is a spiritual shock. It's God's way of confronting worldliness and idolatry in the church, among Christians in other words. When idolatry begins to lure the Christian heart, God reaches into our imagination with images intended to stun us back to spiritual vibrancy. The images fuel our zeal to kill personal sin, keep us alert to the purity of the local church, inform our counsel for fellow sinners, deepen our love for the lost, make us diligent in prayer, disgust us with personal idolatry dissatisfy us with worldliness, and stir a longing in our hearts for Christ's return. Revelation invites us to see ultimate reality through our imaginations in breathtaking, dragon-slaying, Christ-centered, God-glorifying images that change the way we think, act, and speak. That's a longer quote than I typically will read, but I hope you get the gist We need passages like Revelation 12 to shock us back to reality, to make us see, man, I have gotten way too used to the way the world thinks about sin and government and money and politics and on and on. I just think about things way too closely to the way that non-Christians do. And I need something to wake me up to reality. That's what Revelation 12 is doing. He could have said, there's a bad guy, his name's Satan, he hates you. All true. Every bit of that is true. Or he could say there's this nasty red dragon and he's going to eat you alive because he hates your soul. That's what this passage is doing. This passage tells us that you can know that God's victory is certain despite the fierce battle you face. Let me say that again. Know that God's victory is certain despite the fierce battle in which you are engaged, in which you are involved, the fierce battle that you face. God's victory is certain. And this passage tells us three truths about God's victory over Satan, particularly. Okay? Just in case there was any question, the passage told us. Who's the red dragon? Uh, serpent? Devil? Accuser? Like, it tells us all the, all the right words. He's the evil one. He hates you. He wants to kill you. He wants to strangle you and your family and this church and Christians everywhere. He hates you. So this passage tells us three truths about God's victory over Satan. And I'll tell you, they're paradoxical truths. When we get to the last one, you're going to scratch your head and you're going to say, how does that relate to the other two? Because this doesn't make any sense. But save that for about 20 minutes from now. The first of these three paradoxical truths about God's battle and victory over Satan is that Satan intended to devour Jesus and his people. Satan intended to devour Jesus and his people. 
So we read that first section, verses 1 through 6. That's where we're getting this truth, that Satan intended to devour Jesus and his people. Shown us that the battle we're in is fierce, that he wants to kill you. The evil one does. So there's obviously quite a bit of symbolism here, and we're not going to go into every bit of it, even though it is a shorter passage. But we have here a woman clothed with the sun, the moon, and stars. And this is actually alluding back to a passage we read in Sunday school today in Genesis 37, where Joseph has a dream about the sun, the moon, and 11 stars there. But essentially, this is just a symbolic way of saying God's people are beautiful. They're bright. They're radiant. God gives them authority. So God's people here are the woman, and she was pregnant and crying out in birth pains, and the agony of giving birth, it means you're like on the doorstep of the baby coming out. This is talking about Old Testament history. This is talking about the period leading up. We could even bleed into what we call the intertestamental period, so that one blank page between the Old Testament and the New Testament in your Bible. That summarizes like 500 years of history, 400 years of history right there. And even bleeding into that section, or really... uh, encompassing, enveloping that whole section of our human history, this part about the people of God waiting anxiously in agony and in pain for the Redeemer. That's what that's describing there when it says that this woman, God's people, were crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. So you have a woman that's representing God's people, in this case, Israel, In our case today, the church. And the woman is crying out. God's people are waiting for redemption. Waiting for salvation. Waiting for the Messiah. But you have this other sign that John sees in heaven. And it's this red dragon. He has seven heads. That's disgusting. He has ten horns. That's also disgusting. And on his head, seven diadems. So there's like this false claim to power and authority and domination. And he's trying to make you think... I'm the real ruler here. That's what Satan's trying to convey with this image, with this description. And his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven. That's alluding to Daniel chapter 8, essentially telling us that these stars are representing God's people and and, uh, persecution that the evil one is bringing against God's people. That's what uh, Daniel 8 would be telling us there about these stars of heaven being cast down to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman. This is disgusting to picture. The visual here is shocking. That you have someone who wants to devour a baby the second it's born. It's disgusting. And it's supposed to be disgusting to us. And this baby is born a male child. And notice how John just is dropping truth bombs from the Old Testament left and right. And here is one from Psalm 2. He said, this baby is going to rule with a rod of iron. Psalm 2, verse 9. Psalm 2 is absolutely one of my favorite passages of the Bible because it's all over the Bible. In many ways, Psalm 1 and 2 is a summary of the whole Bible. That's a different sermon, but it's true. So she gives birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations. That's from Psalm 2. With a rod of iron. And then what the rest of verse 5 does is summarizes... The entirety of Jesus' earthly ministry in one sentence or one phrase. Her child was caught up to God and to his throne. So Satan wants to crush Jesus. And Satan tried to do this for a long time. And he tried to do it in really specific ways. So I want you to use your 
biblical theological imagination and think where in the Bible do we picture or do we see pictures of the fact that Satan wants to defeat the Messiah, both before and after he's born. And let those stories, Old and New Testament stories, be rolling through your head for a second. And I'm going to start giving them to you of how the evil one tried to defeat God's people before the Messiah could even be born and then after the Messiah was born. One example would be Moses and Pharaoh. Moses is in a basket. Pharaoh wants to kill all the babies. Moses is put into a basket so he can be preserved. So he escapes. So God's people escape. You have Esther and Haman. A beautiful story. An ironic story in the book of Esther. What's Haman want to do? Kill all the Jews. Why? Because Haman is probably a demon-possessed man. He is on a mission to destroy God's people. He hates God's people because he is breathing the air of the dragon behind him. Again, it's almost as if Haman is a puppet behind, and behind him is the dragon pulling the strings, saying, you go and kill all the people. And he failed. You have Nebuchadnezzar trying to kill the three Hebrew men because they would not worship him. That sounds diabolical, that you would kill people not, for not bowing down and and adoring your beautiful gold statue of yourself. You have Goliath trying to slay David. Then you enter into the life of Jesus, and you have Herod trying to kill all the babies in Bethlehem. Killing dozens of babies just because somebody told you that one of them is going to be the king? That sounds diabolical. That sounds like the dragon is breathing behind Herod. Then, Jesus goes into the wilderness and Satan tries to destroy him there. Oh, come on, throw yourself off of this pinnacle. Then you have Jesus going into the synagogue in Luke 4. And he preaches the truth. And the people run him out of the city and take him to the ledge to push him off the ledge to kill him. And without any explanation, says, and Jesus has passed through their midst. Awesome. It would be really cool to have seen that. We don't know how it happened. But all we know is people hated Jesus because the dragon hated Jesus. Because Satan hated Jesus. And he hates all of his people. This hatred continues to this day. Satan intended to devour Jesus and his people. But Jesus is the one who will rule the nations. And so you have this sense that there's no way he could have actually lost. He could have actually been killed by the dragon because he had to rule. And so this child was caught up to God and to his throne. I think it's a very concise way, again, of saying he was taken up to heaven. He ascended to heaven. We affirm that every time we affirm creeds and many confessions, Jesus ascended to heaven. He's safe. Satan didn't get him. He thought he did. He got him on a tree. He crucified him publicly. He made a public shame of him. But then Jesus came back to life. And Satan could do nothing about it. And Jesus has ascended to heaven. He is caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman, the people of God, fled into the wilderness. Who do you think there the woman is? In verse 6. It's the people of God. And where are the people of God? They're living in the wilderness. Where else in the Bible? Again, I'm just kind of asking you to keep churning through what you've heard. If you grew up here in this church and you have come to Sunday school for decades 
and you've read your Bible over and over again, what comes to mind when you think about the wilderness? Well, the first example that probably comes to your mind is God's people going into the wilderness after they flee from Pharaoh. What was Pharaoh trying to do? Destroy God's people. Not let them get away. Instead, they were destroyed. You see that the Old Testament is taking all these pictures and like rehashing them over and over again. But God's people then fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God. Sometimes we see divine passives where it just says prepared for her. Here it actually tells you it's not passive. It says God, or is it, it's not just this hidden idea of, well, I wonder who did the preparing. It tells you exactly who did it. God's the one who prepared a place for his people, and you are safe until God is done with you. Your soul cannot be destroyed by the evil one, no matter how hard he tries. What did Martin Luther say? The body they may kill. God's truth abides still. That's fine. Paul said the same thing. Like, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If you want to kill me, kill me. It's actually fine because I get to go be with the Lord who I love. But if you don't kill me, I'm just going to keep preaching the truth until I die anyway. Perhaps you heard the story this week of a two-year-old girl in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, very close to the Wisconsin state line. A two-year-old girl who walked away from her home in Michigan's Upper Peninsula alongside two family dogs was found in the woods hours later sleeping on the smaller dog like a furry pillow, state police said. I think this was on Thursday. I think I read this on Friday. I thought, Lord, for this providential sermon illustration. She lay down and used one of the dogs as a pillow, and the other dog laid right next and kept her safe, Lieutenant Mark said Thursday. It's a really remarkable story, he said. Troopers used drones and police dogs in the search while local police and citizens from both Michigan and Wisconsin helped look for the girl in the remote wooded area. Around midnight, a citizen, I'm skipping some parts here, a citizen on an ATV found the girl about three miles from her home. A two-year-old girl, two, three miles from her home, how did she stay safe? She had a dog on one side and a dog on the other. She used one as a pillow and the other as a blanket. That's amazing. She was provided for in the wilderness. They found her around midnight because random citizen strangers were out on their ATVs, as you do in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. But just think about what else is in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. Uh, bears, coyotes, wolverines, wolves. I, we could go on. And those things, many of them come out at night. And she's out in the middle of nowhere with two dogs. And they found her. And she was safe. And when I read that, I thought, the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished. This 1,260 days thing may make you scratch your head. I definitely have a bald spot back here from scratching mine. But as I think about this passage, what is, how many days is that? Or what time frame are we talking about here? We also see this exact number referred to later on in verse 14, where God's people are in the wilderness, nourished for a time and times and half a time. That's a time is a year, so times is two more years, you've got three, and half a time is another half of a year, so you've got three and a half years. Coincidentally, if you take 1,260 and you divide it, you know, basically 42 times 30, let's just put it that way, it's 1,260 days. 42 months is three and a half years. What we have here is, in Revelation, we have three different ways of referring to three and a half years. And when God's people read this, 
they would have thought of specific historical situations that the people of God had endured that were three and a half years long. And when they read that, they would have thought, oh, that is symbolizing, as we would expect in a passage with a dragon symbolizing something and a woman symbolizing something, the numbers would be symbolic too then. And what we have here is a, a time frame that symbolizes hard, difficult days of battle, essentially. These symbolize a period of intense suffering for God's people before God delivers them. And again, Revelation refers to this in three different ways. Just have your eyes open to those ways. But Jewish people had come to understand historically that 1260 was emblematic for any period of severe suffering. John uses the expression to refer to the entire period of suffering between Jesus' first and second advents. So from the time when Jesus came as a baby to when the time when Jesus will come as the reigning, conquering king of the world. And we are living in those 1260 days right now. That means that when it says in verse 6 that the woman has fled into the wilderness where there is a place prepared by God where she's being nourished, that's talking about you. And God is nourishing you. And you have to ask, okay, so then how does God nourish me? He didn't give me a dog to take me off from the wilderness. He nourishes you through the Word of God and through the people of God. And I know I'm only in point one and I know time is moving on, but... Let me just pause and encourage you to let God nourish you through the Word and through the Word combined or corporately. So in your individual time in the Word, take it in. Drink it in. Be nourished by it. And then come here to be nourished by it. And I've had some conversations with some people in our congregation and outside of our congregation about why in the world, in a technological era, do we not live stream our services? Some of our homebound members have asked repeatedly why we don't live stream our services. And let me tell you the primary reason we don't live stream our services. This feels like such an offshoot, like this is like the seventh level of application here, but we're going for it anyway, all right? Deep dive. Here we go. We don't live stream our services because we think a church is a group of people who gather in a place at a particular time. You knew, maybe from our website, maybe through habit, you knew to be here at 10.30. We aren't at Starbucks at 9.45. We're here at 10.30. And you showed up. And we think that when we gather together, that's when God does His work in the corporate preaching of God's Word, the corporate singing of God's Word, the corporate praying of God's Word, the visual elements of God's Word, such as baptism and the Lord's Supper, all these things happen when we come together, when we meet together. And even this past week, I had a conversation with one of my sons about school author visits. And I'm just going to make a complaint for a second about if you're an author of children's books, you should be cheaper to go to schools. It's like $5,000 to get an author to come to a school for a day to talk about the books that they've written. Or it's $300 to have them for the exact same amount of time, but have them be on Zoom. Do you think they have lost some sense, authors have lost some sense of how important it is to be in person? And when I told my oldest son this, he goes, it's not the same. And I was like, there's another sermon illustration. Thank you. It's not the same to be sitting in your couch watching a worship service as it is to be hearing 
a suffering sinner sing that God is glorious. You need to be here to hear that. There, end of plug. All right. Be nourished by the word of God, by the people of God. This passage is telling us that you can know that God's victory is certain despite the fierce battle that you face. This first portion, verses 1 through 6, tells us that Satan intended to devour Jesus and his people. Our second portion here, verses 7 through 12, tell us it's already over. Satan has already been defeated. Let me read verses 7 and following for a moment here. Again, to get our momentum going again in the text, Satan has already been defeated. War arose in heaven. Michael and his angels, Michael is the archangel, he's described in a few places in the Bible, just in short little segments to say he's a means by which God accomplishes great things sometimes. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down. And now you find out exactly who that dragon is. He's the ancient serpent. There's one passage in particular that should come to mind when you hear the phrase, that ancient serpent. Which one is it? It's Genesis 3. This is the guy who tried to ruin God's people in the Garden of Eden. This is the guy who brought about the fall, who said, if I can make these people who look like God, they're made in God's image, if I can make these image bearers do something wrong, and rebel against God, I win. That's what he thought, and he was totally wrong. But this ancient serpent who's called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth. This passage is telling us Satan has already been defeated. The battle is over. There are people who have overcome the evil one by the blood of the Lamb. That takes us back to chapter 5. John heard about a lion. He turns around, he sees a bloody lamb. As though slain, but he's not laying there. That means he has the wounds, but he's not laying there. He's standing there. That means he's victorious. That means he's resurrected. That means he's alive right now. Which means he's going to crush the head of the serpent, as Genesis 3 told us would happen. So what should you do when you hear that they have conquered this dragon, by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. In other words, by trusting in the bloodied Jesus who came back to life and by clinging to the truth, by holding fast, not letting the evil one pry your fingers off of the truth of God's word. What should you do? You should celebrate. That's what verse 11 says, or verse 12. Therefore, rejoice. And there's this phrase that's shown up over and over again throughout the book of Revelation, that refers to people who have not put their hope in Christ. They're living on the earth. They're walking around the earth. They are dwelling in the earth. And so John calls them over and over again, earth dwellers. What's verse 12 say? Rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. You're not an earth dweller. You're a heaven dweller. Who are the heaven dwellers? You and me. Our citizenship is not here. Our citizenship is with God, where God is, where the reigning Lamb is, the resurrected standing Lamb. So rejoice, those of you whose hope is in Christ, who are holding fast, who are keeping the commandments. 
But woe to you, O earth and sea, because the devil is doing his thing. And you think about where else the New Testament talks about Satan and his schemes and his wiles. You think about the fact that he's a roaring lion in 1 Peter 5. He is looking to devour you, to destroy you. James 4, Ephesians 4, 2 Corinthians 2. Instead of reading them, you can go, instead of me reading them now, you can go look them up later. So 2 Corinthians 2.11, Ephesians 4.27, and James 4.7. I'll talk about Satan hating you and trying to destroy you because of your allegiance being with Christ, because of the fact that you are a heaven dweller. But the fact you're in heaven, your citizenship is in heaven, your soul is being hidden and provided for in the wilderness throughout a period of intense suffering means that you're safe. Yes, you might lose your life. I prayed for Christians in Somalia today. I could have prayed for Christians in Nigeria or in North Korea, and we could have gone on and on. I think Somalia is number three out of the top 50 of persecution toward Christians. I read that in, uh, I think it's in Nigeria, three of the four Christians who are martyred around the world today are from Nigeria. Three out of four, every four. It's really hard to be a Christian there. People can kill you for your faith, but they cannot take you out of the wilderness where you are protected and provided for by the Lord himself. Satan has already been defeated. So Satan intended to devour Jesus and his people. But the battle's over. The battle is won. Satan has already been defeated. Third, verses 13 through 17. This is where, this is paradoxical. Okay, he's already been defeated, but guess what? The third element of this battle is that Satan will make war on you till the end. He's already been defeated, and he's going to keep making war on you till the end. Let me give you a historical example that maybe will help make sense of this a little bit. That the battle's over, but it's still going on. You're probably familiar with the idea of D-Day and V-E Day. So D-Day is when it was clear that the Allies were going to win World War II. V-E Day means Victory in Europe Day. That's the day where the war was kind of officially over. Like, you can celebrate now. This was in May of 1945, I believe. I had this written down here. Rick, you can just yell it out if I have that wrong. Yeah, May of 1945. Thank you. D-Day is in 1944, just about a year later. Victory in Europe Day. Now you can really celebrate. Okay? But what happened between D-Day and V-E Day? Did Hitler and his cronies just kind of lay down because they saw the writing on the wall? Victory for the Allies was inevitable, but the war wasn't over yet. And some of the most gruesome fighting in the war followed D-Day, before V-E Day. So D-Day represents when Jesus decisively defeated Satan in his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. And V-E Day represents when Jesus will return to earth to consummate his victory. Right now, we are between D-Day and V-E Day. And the war is really hard. And let's just keep in mind, Satan still really hates you. If he was trying to devour the baby as it came out of the birth canal back in chapter uh, 12, verse 4, he still wants to devour you because you are holding the flag and you are waving proudly, I'm on the side of the risen king. That slain lamb is my king and I am going 
to die for him if that's what it takes. And Satan says, okay, then you're going to die. He hates you. Just know that, Christian. And if you're not a Christian, we want to urge you to get on the right side of this. You hear people talk all the time about getting on the right side of history? A lot of times that's a garbage phrase, but right now I'm telling you, you want to be on the right side of this battle. You do not want to be flying the flag that has a dragon with seven heads on it. Get on the side of Jesus. Say what he says. Stand for what he stands for. Hate what he hates. Love what he loves. The evil one is a live dragon. Yes, he has been defeated, but he's still alive. There's a section in The Hobbit, which if you're not familiar with it, just read it. Or watch the movie, I guess you could do that too. But if you're going to read something, read the Bible. But if you have extra time, read The Hobbit. Never laugh at live dragons, Bilbo, you fool, he said to himself. Bilbo's one of the main characters. And he realized, oh yeah, the dragon's still alive. And you shouldn't leave, he says elsewhere, you shouldn't leave a live dragon out of the equation if he's around. Don't leave him out of the equation. He's still alive. So Bilbo says to himself, never laugh at live dragons, you fool. Again, he's saying it to himself so he can call himself a fool. I'm just telling you, Christian, don't laugh at live dragons. He still wants to eat you. He still hates you because of your love for Christ. And he will use sin. Your sin and the sin of other people. And he will use mockery from coworkers or classmates or employers or relatives or neighbors. He will use obscurity. He will make you feel like you are a nobody doing nothing. To make you feel like, boy, I should stop doing this. This is nonsense. My life could be so much easier, so much better. I could be so much wealthier, and on and on, if I didn't stick with Jesus. And Satan's going to use all these things to pry your fingers off your grip on the truth. And that's why when we come to verse 17, you read that the dragon, who's still alive even though he's been defeated, he became furious with the woman, with the people of God, those who are aligned with Christ. And he went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. When is that? Right now. He's making war on you. Right now. He hates you. If you get one thing from this sermon, it's that Satan hates you, but God wins. So cling to God. Trust Him that the battle has already been won. The victory is certain. So this dragon is making war on the rest of her offspring. How's he doing that? He's using this river. Symbolic, clearly. Of what? I don't know. False teaching, persecution, lies, the media, sports. Who knows? But he's using this river, but guess what? You can't outrun the river, but God can open up the earth behind you and the river and make the river do nothing. That's what happens. In verse 16, the earth came to the help of the woman. You had nothing to do with it, but God protected you. He took you into the wilderness. And how did you get there? Do you notice the detail in verse 14? The woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness. What's the wings? What's the eagle? And what you want to do every time you see something like this in Revelation is just say, Where else in the Bible does this show up? Where else do dragons show up? Search that out. 
Where else do eagles show up? I believe the first one is in Exodus 19. And what's God promise his people there? I will deliver you on eagles' wings. How about Isaiah 40, 31? Those who wait on the Lord will mount up on wings of eagles. God's going to protect you. God's going to take you to a safe place. Your soul is safe because you continue to keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And when you read that in verse 17, you think, oh, so salvation really is by works. I really do save myself. That would be a wrong conclusion. Do not assume that. But it is telling us true Christians hold on tight. You keep fighting your sin. This is why Paul used this argument in Romans like, oh, so grace is awesome, so I can just do whatever I want. And he says, no, please don't do that. Please don't assume that. Keep fighting your sin. Keep holding fast to the commandments. Keep holding on to the testimony of Jesus. In other words, keep proclaiming the gospel. Even your presence here today is a way of you telling the evil dragon, you're a loser. You lose. Look at you got 50 people in a random town, in a random church with a random pastor, and you're going to lose because we are going to keep preaching the truth till kingdom come. That's all there is to it. I saw recently a sign, a well-intentioned sign, I'm certain, that says, May peace prevail on the earth. And it's written in a bunch of different languages. So no matter what language you read, you can read, May peace prevail on the earth. Obviously, I want peace, okay? I'm not anti-peace over here. Um, But my brain goes to the how question, not the why. Like, obviously, we know why we want peace. Mine goes to the how does that happen question. Because it clearly isn't happening yet. So what do we need to do to get there? How would you answer that from Revelation 12? How's peace come? Peace comes when the head of the seed of the woman crushes the head. I'm sorry, when the foot of the seed of the woman crushes the head of the seed of the serpent. When God wins, that's when peace will prevail on earth. We sing this at Christmas time. Like, peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. We sing about joy to the world, the Lord has come, let earth receive her king. Let there be peace all over the earth. When's that happen? When Jesus returns. Because when Jesus returns, see ya to the dragon. He's dead. He's gone forever. So if you are here and you are a church member, I want to urge you to keep doing church member things. You know what that means. Every time we gather together for a members meeting, we affirm together our covenant, our promise that we're going to keep holding each other accountable. We're going to keep having secret and family devotion. They're private. I can't remember exactly the word there. I should have memorized. I don't. We're going to keep reading the Bible. We're going to keep praying. We're going to keep giving. We're going to keep showing up. Again, Zoom doesn't cut it. It's so much better to have coffee over a table with each other than over a computer with each other. You know that, so keep showing up. I know life happens. I know we get sick. I know we have family from out of town. I know we go out of town. And 
on, so life happens, I understand that. But if you have a choice in the matter, show up and let God's word nourish you again. Hold people accountable. Don't assume everything's okay. Because when people assume that everything's okay, really bad things are happening behind the surface. Like in a random house in Cleveland where there were young women hidden away for a decade. And then early in May of 2013, the owner of that house in Cleveland forgot to lock the door. He locked one of them, but he didn't lock both. And it was enough for one of those women to escape from the basement and bang on the window and get the attention of a neighbor walking by who was clearly confused by it and then realized something's clearly wrong here. So he came over and kicked the door down and those girls escaped. They were free. They had held on long enough. And I want to urge you, Christian, to keep holding on because that evil guy lost and evil dragons lose too. Keep holding on to the truth because God's victory is certain. Let's pray together. Our Father, may we believe what we've just heard. We may have ten reasons in our minds right now of why we don't want to believe it, because it sounds like a fantasy story, or because it contradicts something we want to do or something we want to believe. Lord, may you withhold the evil one's ability to blind us. Instead of our hearts being blinded, may they be opened to your word And may we embrace all that your word says and hold fast to your commandments and to the testimony of Jesus. Amen.